Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Uber and out. Uber loses its London license again. Musk's Cyber Monday. The Tesla CEO touts 200,000 Cybertruck orders. And here's to the happy couple. Tiffany says yes to LVMH in a $16 billion deal. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Happy Merger Monday. And never mind getting excited about Thanksgiving dinner later on this week. Today, it's all about breakfast at Tiffany's. And the markets right now seemingly like it. Markets like mergers. All U.S. stock markets set to open higher. That's following a strong session in Europe, too. And it kicks us off, of course, for a holiday shortened trading week here in the United States. We've also got Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade confirming their 26 billion dollar tie up too so we'll be watching the financials when the session gets started in around 30 minutes time as well we did see the major averages slipping late last week as well the s&p 500 though and this is the key point still only around half a percent away from record highs history as well suggests we could get back there perhaps this week u.s stocks rise more than 80 percent of the time during thanksgiving week that's according to barons over the weekend something also to be thankful for in terms of trade negotiations too perhaps over the weekend China announcing new guidelines to help curb intellectual property theft. Remember, this is one of Washington's major sticking points. Beijing saying that stronger IP protections and penalties for IP theft may be coming shortly. The big question, of course, is whether or not that will be enough to prevent fresh tariffs being imposed on some $150 billion worth of Chinese goods on December 15th. I think this also probably helped the Asia session too, where Hong Kong stocks also outperformed following a record turnout at local elections that saw big gains for pro-democracy candidates. All the details on that in just a few minutes' time. But for now, let's get to the drivers where there could be a lot less driving, in fact, in London. Uber hitting gridlock over there. The city stripping it of its operating license. The stock down over 3% here pre-market. Haddis Gold joins us now on the story. Haddis, great to have you with us. I saw Wedbush Securities this morning called it a seismic blow if this ban is upheld. Talk us through why, because I think the details on this are pretty alarming. 
Yeah, Julie, this would be a huge blow for Uber if they were to actually lose the license and not be able to continue driving in London because London is one of the top five markets for Uber. And it's one of the only markets outside of the Americas that is so big and so important for the company. Now, Transport for London announced that as of midnight tonight, the license would technically be expired because they say it's a series of regulatory breaches. The main issue, they say, is about driver identification. They say over the past few months, certain drivers have been able to upload their photos to other drivers' accounts and drive under those accounts, pretty much being unauthorized driver. They say some 14,000 trips were taken that as a result were uninsured. They say that there's certain problems around how Uber has been identifying drivers, saying that it's putting passengers' safety at risk. Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, said in a tweet, I know this decision may be unpopular with Uber users, but their safety is the paramount concern. Regulations are there to keep Londoners safe and fully complying with TFL's strict standards is essential if private hire operators want a license to operate in London. Now, Uber uh, has 21 days to appeal. So it's not like as of midnight tonight, Uber drivers will stop be able to be operating on the streets of London. And Uber says they will appeal. They're calling this extraordinary and wrong. The Uber CEO saying in a tweet, we understand we're held to a high bar as we should be, but this TFL decision is just wrong. Over the last two years, we have fundamentally changed how we operate in London. We've come very far and we will keep going for the millions of drivers and riders who rely on us. So, Julia, I don't think that Uber is going to absolutely stop operating in London. I could see this appeals process continuing to drag on, Uber doing something that will somehow satisfy the regulators here. This just goes to show you how important these fights between the regulators, these cities, and companies like Uber are playing out because all it takes is the city saying, nope, you don't have a license, and then Uber can have just billions of its valuation completely just wiped off. Yeah, even with these concerns, you have to assume that for uh, consumers, it would be a real inconvenience. I have to admit, that was my first thought. Haddis Gold, great to have you on that story. Thank you for that. And we shall watch developments. All right, next driver. They're engaged. Luxury powerhouses, LVMH and Tiffany getting together. LVMH is buying the jeweler for around $16.2 billion. Paula Monica is on this story for us. The largest luxury deal ever, Paul, here. And I make that... What a 37% premium to the closing price on the initial approach on October 26th. Wow, that's a price tag. Yeah, it's a lot of little blue boxes here, Julia, clearly. And yes, I mean, I think LVMH realized that Tiffany was kind of vulnerable. This is a company that has had some issues over the past couple of years with sales not being as good as hoped for for a variety of reasons. They had issues uh, way back in, uh, you know, the lead up to the 2016 election because of disruptions around Trump Tower, the Tiffany flagship store on Fifth Avenue. That was an issue back then. There's been problems internationally due to the sluggish economy globally as well. Fewer tourists coming to the U.S. also because of the trade war. So I think LVMH realized that they could scoop up Tiffany and Tiffany stock has done well in the past couple of weeks because of this speculation. But this is a merger that creates an even bigger luxury goods giant and will possibly make Bernard Arnault, the uh, head of LVMH, even wealthier and may even have him surpass Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos on the world's wealthiest rankings. He's inched closer to the two of them based on uh, the stock price move of LVMH today. Take a look there and, oh. you know, how he is within spinning distance of Bezos and Gates and well ahead of poor Warren Buffett at a mere $85.9 billion. Poor Warren. I know. I mean, it's so hard to be the Oracle of Omaha these days. 
There's so many different directions we can take there. I love your point about this providing LVMH with access to U.S. consumers, but also fast-growing Chinese consumers as well. And in return for Tiffany's, perhaps branding help with millennial customers here. But to your point, how close is it then on the global rich list rankings? Yeah, I mean, we will see what happens with the markets in New York as they're about to open. It looks like Amazon and Microsoft could rise along with the broader market on trade hopes. So that gap may uh, may widen again. But LVMH is inching higher, obviously, on the trade talk. I mean, on this uh, merger talk. And, uh, you know, if that means that, uh, you know, Arnaud's net worth jumps alongside LVMH, then he could inch closer to Gates and Buffett. I mean, Gates and uh, Bezos. Yes, lots of diamonds, lots of diamonds in those little blue boxes, however many of them there are. I will point out, though, as well, Credit Suisse had a price target on this at $140. Cohen said $160. So, you know, the other side of the coin here is perhaps they got it cheaper than they might have done. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. We like that story. We also like this story, though. The next driver, Elon Musk tweeting 200,000 orders for his Cybertruck, despite all the debate over the weekend, just a $100 deposit required in order to get that order in. Remember, we talked about this in Friday's show, the armoured glass window shattering during the demonstration. Claire Sebastian joins us once again on this story. Claire, there's so much to talk about, more details about perhaps why why that window shattered, also explanations for why the shape of the Cybertruck is the way it is. But what do we make of the 200,000 orders to start? Well, Julia, it's a good number, 200,000, but they're not orders, they're more like reservations. Uh, and as you said, uh, they only uh. have to put down $100 uh, to, 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 to get that, and it's fully refundable if they change their mind. Now, though, 200,000, good news, similar numbers to what we saw from the Model 3 when that first released. That was up to 325,000 uh, in a week, and we're only four days post uh, the launch of this one. So it does show strong demand. It does show the pull of Elon Musk's vision, despite all the controversy around the car itself and the launch. Uh, and as for that launch and the controversy around that, as you say, Musk on Twitter over the weekend setting the record straight. Take a look at the video he tweeted of his chief designer, uh, who before the event did again throw that metal ball at the window, uh, and it sure. and it worked. Yeah. So during the event, of course, you see it, it shattered. But they posted a video on Twitter before well, the event where it actually worked. So Musk trying to set hard. the record straight on that. He also <laughs> tweeted in defense of the shattering glass, saying that when they took a sledgehammer to the side of the car, uh, that weakened the window. And if they hadn't done that first, that would have actually uh, worked with the, with the glass. So he said he should have done the glass first and the sledgehammer second. But as for those orders, setting the stock up uh, a little bit pre-market there, Julia. So clearly that's some good news for, for Elon Musk and for Tesla. Yeah, I have to say I do double takes when I see Teslas driving down the street, but this one I'm still on the fence with regards to the shape and size. But no marketing, no PR, because we do it for him. Uh, it's quite fascinating, 200,000 orders, even at just $100. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. Hong Kong markets jumping after a landslide victory for the territory's pro-democracy movement in local elections. According to local media, the pro-democracy candidate dominated supporters of mainland China, winning almost 90% of the district council seats up for election. Nick Penton Walsh joins us now from Hong Kong. These local elections, Nick, were seen as a protest vote against China's rule and the approach that they've taken here. We clearly got that. The question is, does it make a difference here? 
but not to the standoff uh, here tonight, which echoes many over the past months, perhaps uh, less violent than we've seen. Let me explain what you're seeing behind me. Protesters who are originally gathering down towards the Poly U, where there are a handful possibly of protesters still inside uh, behind a police cordon, not being allowed out at this point. They decided that a wedding of a police officer was occurring in this hotel and moved down here and began shining laser lights, shouting up at the windows. They think they found some guests at that wedding and began, frankly, uh, giving them a lot of uh, aggravation. They've now moved inside and some media, it seemed, burst into the lobby. That seems to have diffused, but it just sort of shows the slightly chaotic, sporadic nature and the fury, frankly, that's still on the streets here. You might think that protesters would uh, be perhaps overjoyed to see this extraordinary result at the polls, where they've got 90% or so, according to local media, of the council seats, and also a 70% turnout. Let me just walk with our cameraman over here in this direction. The crowd seems to be rushing towards the street, because it's over here that police are gathering up on one of the many walkways in Hong Kong. There have been sort of abuse exchanged from the police over the past hours or so as well, as well as lights shone in each other's eyes. Now, Julia... The question really here that's absolutely key is this local council election has delivered, many saw, a referendum's mandate to the protesters, saying essentially that despite the extraordinary disruption that they've wrecked upon Hong Kong, the damage to its infrastructure and to its economy that's now in recession, the people are still behind these protesters, regardless of the continuing violence. What we're seeing today, though, is karma scenes echoing what we saw in the days leading up to the votes. Protesters very keen, it seems, to not do anything that could allow authorities to cancel the election. But still, the same standoff persists. The problem being that I think protesters may feel emboldened by this mandate, this extraordinary display, record display at the polls backing them up. But that hasn't translated overnight into a change in how Hong Kong is governed because these local councillors control waste collection, control various bus routes, but they don't actually have their hands on the levers of power. That's still Beijing very much. So nothing's really changed in how Hong Kong runs overnight, except that Carrie Lam, backed by Beijing, uh, has said she will seriously reflect on this result. China, however, have simply said... Hong Kong is part of it and remains so no matter what. So this is perhaps what we're going to see more of, anger on the streets of the police still, and possibly that may build as people who thought their vote changed Hong Kong realise that actually it didn't. Julia? Yeah, checkmate, it seems, continuing on all sides. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much for that update there. All right, let's move on. The Washington Post reports White House officials scrambled to justify President Donald Trump's original decision to withhold military aid to Ukraine. It cites emails and documents where officials show concern the decision was made without assessing its legality. The revelations could be used by Democrats in their impeachment inquiry. Thieves stole scores of priceless exhibits from a museum in the German city of Dresden early Monday morning. Curators say diamonds, pearls and rubies were among the items taken from the Green Vault in Dresden Castle. It was home to one of the largest collections of treasures in Europe. Police say they set up a special commission to investigate. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But uh, coming up, surviving the trade war this Christmas, retailers hunker down and hope the future looks bright. Plus, what's in the stars for Libra? Hard questions in store for one of the founders of Facebook's digital coin. Stay with us. That's coming up. Live from London, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. 
Saudi Aramco stocks and the oil giants soar on the first day of trade. Final countdown. One more day of campaigning before tomorrow's UK vote. And Santa surprise, the company sharing $10 million with its workers. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, coming to you live from London the day before a historic, another one, let's say, general election. And the race race has tightened, according to a pollster that was pretty accurate ahead of the 2017 vote. The latest on all that coming right up. But first, as always, let me give you a look at stock market futures in the United States. A bit of a mixed start, as you can see there, expected following two days of pretty modest losses. There were hopes, of course, that we could get news of a delay in U.S. tariffs set to hit further Chinese products this weekend. So far, though, it remains just a rumour of delays. On the brighter side, though, House Democrats in the United States signing off on that U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal, of course, NAFTA marked two. So there are bright spots abroad, global trade issues. European stocks, let's take a look at those. They're having a pretty quiet session awaiting the U.K. vote as well, I think, here. Asia stocks finishing mixed, although take a look at Hong Kong rallying more than three-quarters of 1%. Last but not least, of course, on the agenda today, the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, expected to hold rates steady today in its final meeting before the holidays. Cast your minds back, though, to December of last year, and they actually hiked rates, and the markets reacted accordingly, of course. We came close to falling into bear market territory, so what a difference a year makes. Now, speaking of bears, nothing bearish about the reaction over in Saudi to all giant Saudi Aramco's first day of trade. And that's where we kick off the drivers. So let's get there. Shares of Saudi Arabia's state oil company Aramco riding high after their IPO. They jumped 10% in the session today. That's called Limit Up. It means Aramco as a whole is now valued at almost $1.9 trillion. Nick Robertson joins us now from Riyadh on this story. Nick, great to have you with us. If only we didn't know the back history here and the fact that expectations on size, on geography had been scaled back. We could call this as good as it gets here on the, on these moves today. Yes, stellar day. I mean, look, the read here in Saudi Arabia, despite all the distractions and the detractions from uh, from this, you know, 1.5% uh, Seoul rather than 5%, the uh, anticipated original valuation at 2 billion down to 1.7 until where we're at today. Um, it's seen as a success that the crown prince has really been able to push this through. It's a vehicle for reform. It was a huge and heavy lift. There was broken crockery along the way, if you will. The energy minister, the CEO and Aramco, the same man, uh, moved out of the way, replaced by uh, two other people about in the past couple of months. So, uh, yeah, and the shine taken off of this for international investors because, well, let's face it, when those international investors were invited here back in uh, 2016, they were taken into the glitzy, ritzy Ritz-Carlton Hotel and given the uh, high talk about how this, how this uh, IPO would be wonderful, uh, yet less than a year later, 300 uh, princes and businessmen from Saudi Arabia 
were locked up there. In essence, the government called it curbing corruption. But the international read was that this was consolidation of power by the crown prince, um, who really took fortunes off of some of, some of those people. So, uh, yeah, that took some of the shine off of it. But today's a huge success, as you say, one, almost $1.9 trillion. It's interesting that you mentioned those fortunes being taken off people because that's a lot of the speculation that's going on right now is given that they didn't launch this on an international exchange, who actually bought into this? And you only have to look at the, the prospectus to look at the security issues, the, the risks of investing here that even they mentioned, the drone attacks. I think the most recent issue here to understand that there was reticence and uh, who actually bought into this, Nick? Yeah, it really became much more of a Saudi thing, a, a regional thing to a small degree. But, you know, there were reports that rich people, and there still are plenty of rich people in this country, were pressured by uh, the crown prince and his team to invest in this, uh, that there was pressure on them to do that. And also pressure on some banks to lend to, uh, you know, some larger corporations so that they could invest as well. So, uh, look, the, you know, the takeaway here is that you know, the amount of money raised, 25.6 billion, is a drop in the bucket uh, for the Crown Prince. That sort of money it can get spent very quickly when you have huge projects like the $500 billion futuristic Naum City up on the uh, mm. Red Sea coast. But for the Crown Prince, this is going to give him the ability to leverage a huge amount, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of borrowing on the back of, of this flotation, should he so desire. Yeah, you make a great point. This symbolism here is all, and it's incredibly important and an incredibly important step for, for Saudi and Saudi Arabia here. Nick Robertson, great to have you with us, joining us there from Riyadh. All right, next driver here in the UK. It's the final day of campaigning before Thursday's general election. Boris Johnson's Conservatives still ahead in the latest poll, but only just. Phil Black joins us now. Phil, great to have you with us. The reason why this specific poll and the model that they use garners so much interest is go back to the vote in 2017 and they predicted the seats with 93% accuracy. And what they're saying right now is the Conservatives' lead has narrowed in recent days. Yeah, that's right, Julia. So this latest YouGov research, this snapshot, if you like, seat by seat, constituency by constituency, shows that Boris Johnson's Conservative Party would get a, a majority of around 28 seats. Now, that's 40 seats down from what they, uh, the research showed just two weeks prior to that. So it's a significant tightening. It still shows a majority, but because of the margin of error, uh, it is still possible that the result could be greater than that or it could be less than that too. It could still be within hung parliament territory. And there are other things that the research can't account for as well, such as tactical voting, which in this Brexit-defined uh, election with party allegiances scrambled, perhaps in an unprecedented way, that is certainly something that could impact specific constituencies and perhaps the, the overall result as well. So because of all of that, because it is so tight, Boris Johnson today is arguing strongly. His message to voters is don't be complacent, don't be lazy. It's simply too tight to be clear. So if you want a conservative victory, you've got to make sure you get to the polling station and vote for it. He's also being very cautious. This morning, he was pursued somewhat but on live on breakfast television here by a journalist seeking an interview. And he was clearly going out of his way to avoid that encounter. Take a look. 
go on. There we go. Prime Minister, will you deliver on your promise to uh, come on Good Morning Britain? Of course I will. Thank you very much. Would you, would you like to smooth it for us? Is that all right there? Is that going to fall off? No, I'll move it. I'll move it. There you go. Cheering, Prime Minister. Good one. So at one point during that exchange, Boris Johnson entered an industrial-sized refrigerator that's being interpreted by his critics, by many online, by some of the British press, as well as Boris Johnson hides in fridge to avoid interview. In his efforts to avoid an unscripted moment, he appears to have created a scripted moment. Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, is also on a last-minute blitz. He started his day in Glasgow. He's moving his way south uh, and will be back in London by tonight. But here's a little of what he told supporters on the road earlier today. This election is really about a choice. Tomorrow, the people all across the UK will go to vote and they have a choice. They can elect a government that they can trust. They can elect a government that will eliminate child poverty across Britain. They can elect a government that will end the cruelty and the injustice of universal credit. They can elect a government that will give hope to the next generation by investing properly in education for the future all across the UK. And they can elect a government that will deal with the great issues on the world stage of climate change. So, despite the tightening, Labour knows that it is unlikely that they will secure an overall majority. But they also know to deprive Boris Johnson of victory, they just simply need to keep him from getting a majority. Because remember, that's why this whole election was called, to give Boris Johnson the majority in Parliament he wants in order to drive through his Brexit agenda. Without that majority, this will be a clear defeat for Boris Johnson. Julian. Yeah, still everything to play for in, in these final hours. Just trying to think of a headline as well with the fridge moment. Campaign temporarily on ice. That would have been my headline. Still trying. Still black. Thank you for that. And to try and stay dry there. All right, next driver. The US Federal Reserve meets for the last time this decade, in fact, wrapping up an extremely busy year. 2019 saw the central bank cut rates three times and winding almost half of the two years' worth of tightening before it, all the while under a barrage of fire, of course, from the U.S. President. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, not expected to do anything today. What it's all going to come down to is what their forecasts look like for the economy, but also rates into 2020, a critical election year, of course, too. What are we expecting? Julia, absolutely no fridges for Jerome Powell to hide in today, but he does have cover when it comes to the market <laughs> expectations. Yeah, uh, and and in terms of the data that we've seen recently, the Fed has widely signaled, as you say, that they are going to do nothing. That the jobs report from November uh, really supported that stance. Jerome Powell has made it clear that something really big, really material, has to change in the outlook for them uh, to start raising rates. Analysts looking forward uh, say that there's a much higher chance that that we'll see future rate cuts in 2020 rather than rate rises, but. Wall Street is divided on that. Goldman Sachs sees no rate cuts next year. UBS, uh, by contrast, sees uh, potentially three. So th- there's a lot of divisions. There's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of focus on on how he phrases things in the statement, which isn't really expected to change, and in the press conference, will he will he make it further clearer that 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 rate uh, hikes are less likely than rate cuts? So this uh, you know perhaps the simplest meeting of this year. His his communication uh, strategy likely to be to say as little as possible and stick to the message that he's had, particularly uh, in the last meeting and recent speeches, Julia. Yeah, quite fascinating to see so much concern still and the need for rate cuts 
just if you look at the jobs numbers, of course, the strength of the job numbers that we got last week. Claire Sebastian, more to come on this later on in the show, but thank you for that for now. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The Myanmar civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi is uh, defending her government at the International Court of Justice. The Nobel Peace Prize winner is calling allegations of genocide against the Rohingya, quote, incomplete and misleading. In New Zealand, new tremors on White Island are increasing the risk of another massive eruption. The quakes are preventing the recovery of victims' bodies after the volcanic explosion killed at least six people. Nine people are listed as missing. Climate activist Greta Thunberg is Time's Person of the Year. The Swedish 16-year-old who spoke emotionally to world leaders at September's UN Climate Conference was unveiled as the winner a short time ago. Also on the shortlist were the Hong Kong protesters, President Trump and the anonymous whistleblower who triggered the impeachment inquiry. Right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But still ahead, general election, general uncertainty as Boris Johnson fights to stay at number 10 Downing Street. The view from the investment world coming up. Stay with us. First move coming to you live from London on the eve of the UK general elections. What some have called the nightmare before Christmas, I have to say, but there's no nightmare on Wall Street at this moment. Futures pointing to a mixed open as traders await today's Fed statement too. And perhaps more news on a potential tariff delay too. Uh, tariffs expected to rise, of course, just four days to go before the US hike tariffs on $155 billion worth of Chinese goods, though the rumour suggests there will be a delay. Let's uh, take a look at what's going on in currency land too. The British pound trading modestly higher ahead of tomorrow's general election after dipping earlier on in light of a poll that came out late last night. You can see the FTSE flat. Anything short of a clear victory for the Conservative Party could trigger sharp declines in both the pound and UK stocks, given how we've seen them move in recent weeks. Now, that clear Conservative Party majority no longer looking quite as likely as it once was. A survey released late Tuesday has the Prime Minister's lead over Labour shrinking, as I mentioned there. Roger Bootle, Managing Director of Capital Economics, joins me now. Great to have you with us. What are you expecting in terms of the results? <laughs> well, first of all, it is, of course, as you're saying, incredibly uncertain. Yes. There are a lot of don't knows. We've got the phenomenon of tactical voting, which is a comparatively new thing in British elections, so we don't know. I'm not going to stop there. I personally <laughs> think I personally think that Boris is going to win a decent majority and possibly a majority a fair bit bigger than the polls are saying. Define decent here. Well, I mean, workable. Mrs Thatcher, when she first elected in 79, I think she only had a majority of about 30. Mm. The big majorities came later. 30 is perfectly doable, but I think it may be more than that. Somewhere between the 28 and I think it was 68 that the um, YouGov polls, uh, the first one... Initially. One, initially said. Yes. Then, more recently, 28. Something between that would, I think, be very acceptable. My suspicion is, but, goodness me, you know, we're in a difficult we're territory. We're finger in the air here. My <laughs> suspicion is that people are overcorrecting for the surprise result last time in 2017, where virtually all the pollsters got things wrong. Except this one, of course, which Except was 93% accurate, which is, is why true. we're talking about it true. so much. Yeah. The reason why I'm asking about the degree of potential win mm. here 
it's important for Boris Johnson's call of getting Brexit done, legally fine, if he gets his majority, then mm. the UK can leave the EU on the 31st of January. But the degree upon which he can then negotiate does depend on how big his majority is and to what degree he has to rely on the arch-Brexiteers mm. and how much pressure mm. they apply. So it is very important, and I think it's going to be important for market mm. reaction mm. here too. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I and mean, if he gets a majority of, let's say, four or five seats, he's going to be a hostage to his right-wingers. Yes. And then there's, you know, there are people who die mid-Parliament, you know, there are desertions. So he's constantly got to be on the lookout. Um, that being said, I'm not sure if he piles up a majority much above 40 or 50, it makes much difference. I mean, at that sort of number, he's in, I think, a very strong position. And he's going to be in a strong position also against his European counterparts when he begins the negotiations. But if it's 100, let's say, or 80, I don't think that makes that much difference compared to 40 or 50. The risk here, too, is that we see a hung parliament. What we're not expecting here to see is any majority or win here for, for the Labour Party. I think, for me, coming into this, I hadn't quite appreciated the scale, the differences here mm. in economic policy mm. for, for the Labour Party and the Conservatives, and we'll stick with those two for, for simplicity, quite frankly. Mm. Um, the spending, the potential spending that the Labour Party was talking about here, and we got a flavour of that earlier on in the show, mm. was quite eye-opening. Can yeah. you just explain to us how dramatic policy would have shifted or would shift if the Labour Party were in charge and perhaps could be mm. in a coalition sense? Well, I think one way to look at it is that essentially the policies that the Labour Party is putting forward effectively amount to the complete reversal of Thatcherism. So we're back really to the economic policies of the 1970s and in se on se several fronts. First of all, of course, the share of government and therefore tax in the economy, uh, public ownership, uh, the renationalisation of large parts of British industry that utilities. have been privatised, utilities, the power of the unions. It really is a reversal of all of that. And, of course, the things we don't quite know, um, whether that's going to be the end of it, because Mr Corbyn has been making some promises on the hoof. The other day, uh, he promised something that wasn't even in the manifesto, maybe to compensate uh, women pensioners who uh, missed out when the pension age was increased. And that was upwards of... Well, over £50 billion just Almost came 60 up. billion. Yes, that's right. Just like that. <laughs> yeah, um, quite eye-opening. Um, but the, the, the point is, for both of these, more government mm. is the future. More government spending. And there are a lot of people looking at this and saying, actually, the economy requires that. Mm. There is inequality and, and greater support is needed. Mm. What's the risk here that we do see a Conservative win based on the polls and actually the distraction of Brexit and the need to get a trade deal continues into 2020. Mm. What economic policies are required to regalvanise or should we be an optimist and say actually investment will come back if there is a Conservative win here? Well, I am quite optimistic that investment will come back mm. both from British companies and foreign companies who've postponed making a choice, really, because they wanted to sort out, get sorted out Brexit and Corbyn, frankly. Uh, but over and above that, I, I, I would support a, a fair degree of increased public spending and borrowing, provided that it's spending on the right things, investment projects, good investment projects, and provided it's, it's, it's within an overall framework, a fiscal framework, which doesn't then run away with itself. Uh, and I, I think, actually, if the Conservatives do win a majority, that's roughly what we will see. There will be more spending and more borrowing, but it's not going to be the runaway sort. We can cope with it. The UK economy can. can cope we with it. We need it, probably. Yeah, that's a good point. Roger Bootle, thank you so much for joining us. Roger Bootle, Managing Director of Capital Economics.
We're going to take a break, but up next, feeling the burn. Peloton share price falls again, this time after an activist investor says there's plenty of downside to come. We're back in two. Five days in a row. To first move live from London. That was the opening bell on Wall Street. Plenty of high fives there, and it's a less high five for the market, though. A mixed open for US stocks. Investors playing it safe before a deluge of big events over the next couple of days. We've got today's Fed decision, of course, and tomorrow's UK general election. Not to be forgotten either. The first European Central Bank meeting with Christine Lagarde, of course, at the helm, taking place in tomorrow's session too. Now, despite all the trade and political uncertainties, U.S. stocks, just to give you some context here, down by only around uh, half a percent this December and still less than a percent away in aggregate from record highs. Now, before the bell, we received a hotter than expected reading on U.S. consumer prices, too, rising some 0.3 percent in November. That lifts inflation to a 12-month high, certain to be a topic of conversation at today's Fed meeting. So let's get some more context now. Joining me, Scott Minard. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners. Scott, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Your assessment of what the Fed does and says today, all eyes, I think, on the dot plots and their forecasts for the future. Yeah, well, Julie, I think the Fed is uh, probably pretty satisfied with itself right now because... Uh, uh, given the employment data and the data that's coming in, I think Jay Powell can basically say that the Fed's rate cuts have been uh, uh, or achieved the objective that they were looking for, which is, you know, we've stabilized the economy and it seems to be reaccelerating at this point. And, you know, I, I think the dot plot is going to maybe be predicting future rate hikes. Um, you know, uh, history shows us that uh, about nine months after the Federal Reserve stops cutting interest rates, uh, if there is no recession, then uh, the economy begins to reaccelerate. So, you know, given uh, where we are and how the Fed has uh, cut rates into the uh, third quarter and to the fourth quarter, I think uh, by the time we get into the second half of next year, we'll see a lot more strength and the Fed will probably have to move again. Do you think the Federal Reserve could hike in an election year? Yes, I think so. I think, um, uh, you know, the uh, the Fed will have achieved its objective. Of course, you know, there are always some uh, macro risks here. Uh, the trade war, if it should increase, I think that's going to make it more difficult on the Fed. But uh, I don't think that uh, President Trump is really interested in, in elevating the trade war anymore because he's facing re-election. And uh, the impact it's having on uh, domestic manufacturing has been uh, not exactly what he'd anticipated. So uh, uh, perhaps uh, easing off on the trade war should be in the cards. And I think that that will help uh, uh, the U.S. economy. What do you think would be the trigger for that, ultimately? Are we talking about rising inflation? Are we talking about the buildup of excesses that you often talk about? particularly market-based excesses or the combination of that and the fact that the jobs market remains and still is incredibly strong, particularly when we look at, at last week's payroll numbers? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, 
Uh, again, if you go back to the history of these mid-cycle slowdowns, like we had in 1998 or even in 1987, and the Federal Reserve pauses on its rate increases and reverses course for a short period of time, uh, it allows excesses to build up into the system. Uh, in uh, 19, uh, between 87 and 1990, uh, there were a lot of excesses that built up in the real estate market, and, and we ended up uh, having the government having to bail out the banks uh, in their commercial real estate exposure. And then, uh, in, uh, obviously, in uh, 898, uh, we had the internet bubble, and uh, so by the time we got to 2001, the excesses in the system had, had forced the Fed to have to take more aggressive action. So, you know, when I look at the world today and I see uh, record levels of corporate debt, especially uh, relative to GDP and, and free cash flow ratios, uh, anytime the Fed starts to put more pressure on the economy in the future, uh, this, this bubble in corporate debt uh, is going to come under pressure, and I think uh, the next downturn, unlike the past one, uh, where it was focused on the consumer, uh, will be focused in uh, the business sector, and uh, I think there's a lot of damage to be done. You know, it's interesting. We'll stick with this theme because we were talking earlier on in the show about the range of analysts' expectations for, for 2020 and this divergence between perhaps one further cut staying on hold or even in certain cases, three cuts. If you and the Fed are perhaps going to suggest one hike potentially next year, and right now the market pricing suggests they do nothing until November of next year, we're looking at potential digestion problems perhaps if they're not cautious with the language and start to warn the market perhaps that that they're coming to get them with rate hikes potentially sooner than they think. Right. Well, I think that uh, uh, at this stage of the game, they're going to be really hesitant to, to talk about rate hikes other than what might show up in the dot plot. Uh, I think that they're going to emphasize that they're on hold. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, as we see the economy rebounding, Julia, it's going to give more of a lift to risk assets, including stocks. Uh, and uh, so by the time we get into the second half of next year uh, and we're facing a presidential election, uh, I think uh, the Fed's going to be feeling pretty good about things. And uh, that's going to give them a lot more confidence to try to uh, deal with uh, some of the longer term issues they're concerned about, which is uh, obviously price stability. Yeah, the fundamentals and expectations will have caught up by that point. Scott, I want to bring it to the UK because there's a reason I'm here. What are you expecting and what are you telling investors about the UK election and the potential market fallout post that? Well, you know, I think that uh, uh, Corbyn will, will probably get reelected. I think the market is feeling pretty confident about that. And Julia, you know, I've always been in the minority in that the uh, I, I really felt the whole Brexit discussion was never such a big deal. Um, the reality is, is that uh, Europe is not going to allow EU to, or the UK to have a, a hard Brexit. Uh, it's not in their interest. And uh, Great Britain has a lot to gain uh, through Brexit because uh, by being able to negotiate uh, treaties independently uh, to allow the pound devalue as it did, uh, is good uh, for the British economy. And so uh, uh, in the longer run, I think uh, that Brexit will uh, prove to be sort of a passing storm that nobody really remembers later on. Huh. 
So um, just to be clear, a Boris re-election. So you, even in the short term, and let's say over the next six months, you, you see upside potentially for, for UK assets if we do see um, a majority government and a re-election of, of Boris Johnson here in the UK. Well, I think Boris Johnson, um, and I sorry, I, I misspoke with Corbyn. Uh, Boris <laughs> Just Johnson. Yeah, God, I get I get a little <laughs> confused with uh, British politics. Uh, uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson. Sorry, Boris Johnson will, uh, uh, I think, be able to consolidate power. And uh, you know, the most disturbing thing about uh, uh, Boris Johnson, when you look at it, is uh, it's it's yet another uh, vote for populism and nationalism uh, around the world. And uh, someday, uh, you know, we're going to be dealing with the consequences of this. Uh, because, uh, uh, as you've seen in the United States, uh, the uh, the very nationalistic and, and populist movement here uh, has caused a lot of turmoil, which we're currently watching in the impeachment hearings. So, um, uh, I think longer term, uh, uh, Johnson will, uh, in the short run, he'll benefit uh, and he'll he'll negotiate his way through Brexit. But in the longer run, uh, you know. Great Britain may choose another prime minister to to take them uh, down that road. Yeah, growth policies required, otherwise you can't financially afford to fulfill your promises. Scott Minard from Guggenheim Partners, great to have you with us and get your wisdom as always. Thank you. Uh, thank you, right, Julia. up next, as China reportedly orders all foreign tech to be stripped from its systems, we bring you an interview with the head of Intel one of the firms that could suffer. Stay with us. We'll be back in a few. Welcome back to First Move. China wants all foreign technology removed from its systems. That, according to a report in the Financial Times. Now, if true, the move would likely impact big U.S. firms that supply to China, such as Intel tech, and particularly 5G technology, has emerged as a key battleground in an increasingly damaging trade war between the two nations. Well, before this news broke, I spoke to Intel CEO about the opportunities offered by 5G, particularly in China. Listen in. Yeah, we, um, we are uh, equally as excited about the mm. opportunity that 5G creates for us. We believe that that is one of the emerging technologies that's going to create new opportunities for, again, both consumers and enterprises. And in this 5G world, we expect a bit of a convergence of uh, communications, what happens in networks, and compute. And a 5G world will have more compute moving to the network. So those big pipes that the telecom providers put, put into service can be more intelligent because more compute will happen in the networks. And with more compute happening at the networks closer to devices at the edge, it will create more and more use cases that factories and retail stores and hospitals where they can benefit from the power of compute technology close to the network edge in a 5G world. It's one of the key emerging technologies that we see that we've been investing in for a while that we think is going to create real opportunities for compute at the network and at the edge. What we've seen in the last couple of months is China rolling out 5G networks in in 50 different cities. And then I look at what the United States is doing and I, I wonder how far are we behind 
what China's doing here and the capabilities that they've got and how quickly can we catch up? So um, fi- uh, we play a reasonably big role in deploying technologies around the world. We're right. a global service provider. We have customers everywhere, including a role that we play in the deployment of 5G technologies in China. So we work with the telcos here to drive 5G deployment with key telcos and players at the network. The challenge is we need to move faster as a country. We need to deploy more resources, more technology to facilitate the pace for the U.S. to keep up with the power that the technology 5G provides to roll it out in a more rapid way. And we're committed to working with the players in the ecosystem to accelerate the pace of 5G rollout here in the U.S. Intel's also had a pretty turbulent year. The company finalized the sale of its 5G modem business to Apple for $1 billion. Intel has subsequently suggested that deal represents a, quote, a multi-billion dollar loss and alleges that rival Qualcomm pushed it out of that market. The tech giant has also grappled with some supply chain issues. Both Dell and HP blamed Intel when announcing lower revenue expectations. I asked Bob Swan how he's dealing with these issues. First and foremost, um, the business, our business has grown tremendously over the last several years. Um, We've added roughly $14 billion Mm. in revenue over the course of the last four years. And during that time, we've been putting in more and more capacity to deal with uh, the growth that our customers are experiencing. And our customers are in turn counting on us to meet their growing needs, whether it's data-centric collection of customers or PC-centric collection of customers. When we came into 2019, we put more capacity in place under the expectation that the PC TAM would be roughly flat in 2019. And the reality is what we're experiencing collectively as an industry is much stronger growth than we anticipated at the beginning of the year. And we haven't had the uh, ability to put more and more inventory in place that would enable us to meet this growth and deal with uh, volatility in our factories. So as a result, we're growing much faster than we thought uh, six months ago. But at the same time, we haven't been able to build the microprocessors that our customers need. And we're constraining their growth in Mm. the fourth quarter. So we are working extremely hard in conjunction with our PC customers to get them the product they need when they need it. But given the growth that we've seen, we haven't been able to keep pace with their demand. We're working hard with them. They're counting on us. That's important to us to to continue to earn and win their respect and their trust that we will be there for them in helping them grow their business. Yeah, to your point, it's a first-class problem when you're surprised by um, the growth that you've seen. How long is it going to take before you can meet their demand? To your point, it's about putting in the capacity, the manufacturing capacity to meet that, and that does take time. Yeah, uh, Julia, it is a first-class problem, but it is a problem uh, because Mm. our customers are counting on us. So we put 25% more capacity in place in 2019, 
And our expectations in 2020 is we'll put another 25% capacity in place so our customers do not have to worry about our supply. They have more important things to worry about, about the services they provide for their customers. So in 2020, we'll put another 25% capacity in place so that we can meet their needs and build the inventory buffers required for the volatility in the demand signals that we see for our business and for the industry. Intel's core business is undergoing a fundamental transition at this moment, the move from storing and processing data on PCs to then doing it on the cloud has created what its CEO called an insatiable demand for that part of the business. We have been going through quite a transformation and what we characterize as going from a company who has built the technologies to power the compute era to a company that's increasingly building the technologies to empower or unleash uh, data and the implications of data on both consumer experiences and on enterprises. So data-centric for us is what we've seen over the last several years is an insatiable appetite uh, by both consumers and companies to use more and more decision, uh, use more and more data to influence the decisions and or improve the experiences that our customers provide for their customers. In that world of creating a ton of data, the implications are that companies need more and more compute capacity to process all that data. They need to store that data more and more and have it readily available. And that data needs to move around more and more. That, that desire to create more and more data has implications in demand for the things that we do so well, which is build the compute technologies that power computers. And today we just see a world where there's more and more compute, not just a PC, not just a data center, but increasingly compute at the networks and compute at the edge, including the billions of connected devices, whether they're a phone, whether they're a retail shop, whether they're a factory, whether they're an automobile. It's we are building and deploying the technology in an increasingly data-centric world that allows consumers and enterprises to use that data in new and different ways. And you've said whether it's 5G technology or the Internet of Things or, to your point, artificial intelligence and actually using that data in a more sophisticated way going forward, 70% of the growth then is going to be derived from, from this data-centric focus. What do we mean by the future? How many years are we talking about for Intel here before we see that statistic? Well, it's been um, just in terms of historically, um, over the last six years, mm. uh, we've gone from 70% of our company has been driven by the PC, the technologies that power the PC. And over that relatively short period of time, today it's roughly 50-50. And when we project forward, um, we look at roughly over the next five years, what was 70-30 six years ago to 50-50 today, will be more like 30, 70. 
That was the uh, CEO of Intel there. My favorite story of the day coming up. It's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas for the staff of one Baltimore company. The surprise that's moving them to tears next. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's global movers. Shares of Boeing falling around 2% in the session. The FAA says the process for getting the 737 MAX back into the air will probably extend into 2020. I'm not sure there's any breaking news there. There had been hope that Boeing would get the 737 recertified this month. Home Depot shares also under pressure. The company cutting their 2020 sales estimates. Also look at uh, Peloton right now. Shares sharply lower, almost 5% for a second straight session of losses, as we mentioned earlier. Short seller Citroen Research saying the shares of the exercise biking firm could plunge 85% as competitors enter the space. And Netflix bouncing back a bit after Tuesday's 3% sell-off. One analyst warning yesterday that the company could lose 4 million subscribers next year as the streaming wars heat up. And speaking of that war, in today's boardroom brief, Disney Plus is the most Googled term of 2019. Wowzers, the streaming service beat out Game of Thrones and iPhone 11 to the top spot in what is a fairy tale ending to a stellar year for Disney. Now, to one real estate company that's really feeling the Christmas spirit. Baltimore's St. John Properties surprised 198 staff at their annual holiday party with a $10 million bonus, split among them that averages around $50,000 each. Quite the sweetener to end the year on. And that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Looking forward to our Christmas party too. <laughs> now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.